Welcome everybody to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG Rob Silva, the original great one. And today we are talking about the two fights that happened in upstate New York that aired on ESPN Saturday night. I have a uh, three questions I will answer in my Ask Rob Silva Q&A session. And then I will do a historical overview of a man who died on January 12th, the greatest South African heavyweight of all time, former WBA heavyweight champion of the world, Jerry Coetzee. But before I begin the program, I have a special announcement. For those who subscribe to the $5 a month Patreon page on the Fight Game Media Network, you know that I've been doing my greatest upsets in boxing history. Um, the 10th one is about to come out, and that's Buster Douglas. Historic, iconic February 1990 Tokyo, Japan knockout of Mike Tyson as he was a 42-1 to favorite. Well, starting in February, we have the new project. My new project for the year 2023, and that is entitled The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali. For the next 10 months, starting in February, I will take a look at 10 of the biggest fights of Muhammad Ali's career. And it will start with the rematch in Lewiston, Maine, March of 1965 versus Sonny Liston. And you want to you might be out there asking, well, why not his February 1964 upset of Sonny Liston? Because that is already available on the Patreon feed in the Greatest Upsets in Boxing History Project podcast. So there's no need for me to repeat that fight on a, pod, on a Patreon pod when it's already there available. So that's a precursor. One of the greatest subsets in boxing history that's already available on the Patreon page. So if you subscribe today, you can listen to that. And then you could start next month fresh when I pick up from that upset and start with Muhammad Ali's March 1965 defense of his undisputed heavyweight championship against Charles Sonny Liston. And each episode, there will be 10 episodes each episode i will give a historical overview of and i will recall what my father told me about the events of those fights before it happened i will give the political climate of the country and the world at the time and then for you great patreon pledges out there we will do a watch along in which i give play-by-play announcing of each fight now we all know that the first fight in the series, Ali versus Listed Two, the Phantom Punch, as you would, as it's been known, as it's been called by uh, media experts and boxing historians alike. That's only one round, so you'll just be hearing me announcing one round. But beginning with part two, up and through ten, none of those fights go around and the rest of the fights are at least seven rounds and more from episodes two two to two to through ten and you will see why I'm better than any leading boxing announcer today and that's not saying much because Mauro Ronaldo 
Joe Tessitore and Todd Mannix are all bums. They stink. Anybody could do better than them. But you will hear my enthusiasm. You will hear my passion when we do the play play by play. And I will have the link of the YouTube uh, uh, channel to watch that fight, the actual fight, so you can watch along while I do play by play. And by the way, kudos to a guy that I'll be using much of the footage from, longtime listener Martin from the UK. He has a, a YouTube channel called Vintage Boxing. I'd highly recommend you people out there to go subscribe to that channel. Check out the great, great, pristine footage that he has on that channel. He has one of the fights that I don't have. I have over 20,000 fights in my boxing collection on videotapes and uh, DVDs. He has the complete, unedited 1967 broadcast of Leotis's Martin knockout of Charles Sonny Liston. It's in pristine, pristine condition. Where if I cuss? The one, the only. Howard Kelsell on commentary. Ladies and gentlemen, Charles Sonny Liston. Round. Liston. Looks tired. Liston. Oh, my God! Down goes Liston! The career of Sonny Liston is over! And from time to time throughout uh, the Ali project, I will be doing some Howard Kelsell. You're acting quite truculent there, Ali. Well, Howard, if truculent's good, that's me. <laughs> I love, check out that footage right before Ali goes into a uh, reject being drafted into the military. Howard interviews him outside and said, Muhammad, you're acting quite truculent. <laughs> Ali's like, well, Howard. If truckling is good, that's me. I I love I love that. But yes, uh, you'll be hearing some Howard Cosell. So five dollars a month month. The link of the Patreon page is in the description of the podcast. Or you could go to Patreon.com and search Fight Game Media, Fight Game Network, or just Fight Game. And you will see the link, $5 a month. You will get all 10 episodes of the greatest upsets in boxing history. And beginning in February, Black History Month. What I Well, in my opinion, every day and every month is Black History Month, Black History Day. But that's besides the point. Beginning in February, the 10 greatest performances, fights of Muhammad Ali. And I will give a historical overview and a breakdown of Ali's career that no one has ever done in audio format. Yeah, you've had great documentaries on television. Ali's had more documentaries than every athlete combined. But no one will give you the rundown because I'm going to go by what my father told me from what I saw in my own eyes on videotape. Combine the two, and then I will do the play-by-play -play of each and every one of the ten fights. Now on to Saturday night's doubleheader on ESPN. The first fight, we saw undefeated Italian Olympian Guido Vianello fight uh, a journeyman in Johnny Rice, his former sparring partner, Johnny Rice, coming off two impressive victories over former prospect Michael Coffey. 
And in this fight, Vianello for the first five rounds dominated with with his jab. Rice was trying to uh, counter and kept waiting and kept waiting. It was the first five rounds were very very bland, but Vianello was winning. And then in the sixth round, Rice snapped Vianello's head back with a beautiful jab and busted him open. Referee Benji Estevez incorrectly called it a headbutt. And in the seventh round, Vianello was bleeding so badly that they had to stop the fight. And Benji Estevez was going to go to the scorecards. And Vianello would have won by decision. But uh uh-oh, nuh-uh. Johnny Rice's camp protested. They went to the videotape. The New York State Athletic Commission has a rule that now if something happens that uh, the corner man doesn't agree with, they can go to the videotape and the videotape proved that it was that jab that opened up the massive cut of Vianello. And Johnny Rice wins another fight against a prospect. Seventh round technical knockout sets up Johnny Rice for a fight with either Effie Jogba or Jarrett Baby Anderson or Stephen Shaw. Maybe even a rematch with Vianello. Johnny Rice continues to be a tremendous spoiler in the heavyweight division. Kudos to Johnny Rice. Huge win. He continues to be that spoiler in the heavyweight division. Maybe they could put him in the ring against Daniel Dubois. We'd love to see him fight Daniel Dubois. Daniel Dubois, the most overrated heavyweight on the planet right now. Now, on to the main event that occurred Saturday night. Verona, New York, upstate New York, not too far from the International Boxing Hall of Fame. We have up-and-coming American prospect Stephen Shaw. Stephen Shaw reminds me a lot of former heavyweight champion uh, Chris Bird and former heavyweight contender Jimmy Young, in which he, very cute fighter, gives you a lot of head movement, hard to hit. And the first six rounds between Stephen Shaw and Effie Jagba was a wonderful chess match. I loved it because both fighters were trying to out-jab the other fighter as both fighters have very good jabs. Effie Jogba has developed into a very good fighter. Uh, his loss to Frank Sanchez made him step up his game. And in this fight, he was jabbing on the same level as Stephen Shaw. And Stephen Shaw has a tremendous left jab. First six rounds, I had it dead even. Beginning in the seventh round, Effie began to land that beautiful right cross of his. And he hurt Shaw a few times from round seven through ten. Swept the last four rounds of my card as the jab dominated. The right hand, the left hook, body punches. He was landing at, on Shaw. Shaw ran out of gas, lost the last four rounds. Ijagba wins on all three scorecards, 96-94. I had it 97-93. A Jogba, and now a Jogba, his career is resurrected, is rejuvenated. I want to see him fight Jared Baby Anderson next. I would love that fight. And and it's time to take the training wheels off of Jared Anderson. I don't want to see him in the ring with any more cab drivers. The four guys that fought last night, I wouldn't mind if Baby Anderson fought either of these guys this year. 
any of those four guys. Uh, my preference, of course, would be Effie Jogba, but Stephen Shaw would be a nice test for Jared Anderson as he fights a a, a, a very difficult stylist. Because Shaw will be trouble for anybody in the ring at the, in the heavyweight division. Uh, Johnny Rice, who gives it his all, while Jared Anderson is a thousand times more talented than Johnny Rice, it would be a nice test. And, of course... Huh, I really don't want to see him. Well, you know what? Yeah, let him maybe even put him in with Guido Vianello, and then he could put Vianello uh, out to pasture. <laughs> but I really want to see Baby Jared Baby Anderson versus Effie Jogba. I think that would be a tremendous test for Anderson because we know he's talented. We know he has the potential, but he's not going to get better fighting bum after bum. After bum. Leave those type of fights for that bum, Edgar Belanga. Now on to this week's Q&A. And the first question is from my longtime buddy, listener. I mean, he's been a listener of all my boxing podcasts for so many years. Mark Stoy McAhill. And Mark Stoy, and by the way, if you want to ask questions, Hashtag Ask Rob Silver on Twitter, or you could DM me Robert Silver five seven six eight at Robert Silver five seven six eight on Twitter. Uh, I always every week put out the link on Twitter and ask anybody. You can ask me any type of question: boxing, baseball, relationships, movies, music, politics. You can ask me any question, and I'll answer it to the best of my ability. Mark asked me, do I believe Manny Pacquiao was on steroids? And if so, what time period did he use? I believe, Mark, that Manny Pacquiao began using steroids in late 2008 when he batted Oscar De La Hoya up until... He his two fights with Timothy Bradley. Cause I think when he fought one Manuel Marquez the fourth time when he almost got killed in 2012, that he no longer was using steroids. And when he lost to Floyd in May of 2015, I don't believe he was on steroids. But I believe from 2008 to 2011, he was injecting his body with steroid after steroid after steroid. He looked like a Filipino Bruce Lee. How do you go from being a featherweight, a junior lightweight, and then jump up all the way to welterweight and beat up? Now, Delahoya was washed up. Manny might could have been 126 that night and beaten Delahoya with his speed and quickness. But you combine his speed and quickness with extra strength with the steroids, and he was able to batter Delahoya, Miguel Cotto. Antonio Margarito, he batted one welterweight junior middleweight after another, knocked out Ricky, almost killed Ricky Hatton at junior welterweight. So, uh, yes, I do believe he was using uh, a steroids uh, throughout uh, his entire career. And in my, uh, Mark, uh, not his entire career, my bad, from 2008 to 2011. Now, Mark also asked if Manny wasn't on the juice where would his all-time great ranking be? And um, Mark, I think he would have gone as far as lightweight. 
I could have seen him go as far as lightweight. And, you know, he won titles at a flyweight, bantamweight, super bantamweight, and featherweight. I think with his speed and quickness and incredible punching power, he would have went up to 135 and he would have had great success. The only problem he would have had, of course, was with one Manuel Marquez who knocked him out finally. And in four fights, Marquez gave Manny hell. The only guy that gave Manny bigger problems than one Manuel Marquez was, of course, the legendary money Floyd Mayweather. So, and I don't think Manny would be as ranked high. Like, I've got Manny 11th, and you'll hear that that uh, or historical overview of Manny's career next week. I've got him as the 11th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. If Manny didn't use steroids, he'd probably be somewhere between 20 to 25. That's a huge drop, right? Steroids helped Manny immensely. Mark Anthony asked the question, where do I rank Amanda Serrano, all-time great female fighters? He's got Clarissa Shields as the GOAT. And, yes, Clarissa Shields, Clarissa Shields is the greatest female fighter of all time. Everybody else fight, is battling for second. She is the Serena Williams of boxing. She is the Cheryl Miller of boxing. She is the Jackie Joyner Kersey of boxing. All those female athletes were the greatest in my opinion in their respective sports Clarissa it is by far it's not even close she's the greatest Amanda Serrano I can't put at number two mark because she lost to the number two in my book and that's Katie Taylor Katie Taylor one of the great boxer punches in the history of the female um in the history of female boxing I've got Katie Taylor number two. I've got Layla Ali number three. Layla, like her father Muhammad, transcended the sport of boxing, was bigger than the sport, had the single highest female pay-per-view fight of all time against Joe Frazier's daughter. Layla Ali beat up Chrissy Martin, who a lot of people were trying to claim was the greatest uh, female fighter of all time. Chrissy's not even in my top five. Layla, number three. And Amanda, right now, I got number four. She can still get to number two, but she's got to beat Kaylee, Katie in a rematch and convincingly. So, once again, Mark, great question. Keeps both Marks. I got Mark Anthony and Mark Stoy McAhill. Both of you brothers keep sending me those great questions. And the final question is from my longtime buddy out in the UK, Luigi. He asked me. Do I agree with him that Nigel Ben Ben belongs in the International Boxing Hall of Fame? Yes, Luigi. Nigel Ben should have been in the Hall of Fame many, many years ago. He's still not elected. Yet, they elected clowns like Arturo Gatti and Timothy Bradley. You combine Timothy Bradley and Arturo Gatti, they're not as great as Nigel Ben. Nigel Ben was one of the most ferocious middleweight and super middleweight punches of all time. To beat Nigel Ben, you had to overcome his punching power. It was no easy feat. Chris Eubank in the first fight when he stopped Nigel Ben was in a war with Nigel Ben. That was a great fight. When Chris, when Nigel Ben lost to Michael Watson, he was beating the hell out of Michael Watson, but Michael Watson employed the rope-a-dope and Nigel Ben wore down and uh, Michael Watson knocked him out. 
Chris Eubank, I also believe, belongs in the International Boxing Hall of Fame, Luigi, along with Stevie Collins. Those three not being in, but Timothy Bradley, Arturo Gatti, and Barry McGuigan in, to me, that's 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 not right. Those three fighters I mentioned, Collins, Ben, and Eubank, are better, were greater, had greater careers than McGuigan, Gatti, and Bradley. Criminal, in my opinion, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Luigi, I have a question for you, and also I would like my longtime friend Mark Went, Mark Rent from the UK to answer this. Where is Nigel Ben ranked, and this is me answering the question with a question, among the most popular British fighters of all time, where does Nigel Ben rank? Because every time I saw Nigel Ben fight on television, when he was fighting in the UK, the audiences were roaring. They were massive. And I mean, I can only compare that from what I've seen on TV. You guys would give me a bigger picture being that you lived in the UK all your life and you know the landscape and you, you know what people are thinking and people are talking about in the UK. But I'm looking at crowd reactions. I, uh, Frank Bruno, Nigel Ben, and uh, Frank Bruno, Nigel Ben. There was another name that and Ricky Hatton. The, 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 I mean, they they had massive followings. And Luigi and Mark were another question for you two great UK uh, 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 fellas. Tyson Fury, where does he rank popularity rise amongst the fighters I mentioned? Uh, answer me on Twitter, big man. And and then and I'll read your responses on the end next week because this was a great question, as always, Luigi. And now, before I before I uh, talk about the career of Jerry Kotsea, I want to quickly read a tweet that Oscar De La Hoya tweeted a little bit after midnight, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Send the contract over. The deadline is Monday. Hashtag Tank Garcia. Once again, we see shenanigans involving a major fight trying to be put together. I was told, the media told me, Tank's camp told me, Garcia's camp told me, Oscar told me back in October, November that they were going to fight in April after both had a tune-up fight in January. Ryan Garcia says, I'm not going to have a tune-up fight. I am going to put all my efforts towards fighting Tank in April. Now, there's no signed contract. Oscar's saying send the contract over. The deadline's Monday. This fight doesn't look like it's going to happen. And once again, shenanigans and then on ESPN doing the two fights I mentioned Stephen Shaw versus Effie Jagba and uh, Vianello versus Johnny Rice J uh, Joe Tessitore and Mark Kriegel claim that Usyk Fury could be signed any day now before the end of the week I don't want to hear it could be I want to see a press conference saying the fight is done both fighters on the podium with the promoters saying, yes, this fight is done. This is the date. Enough of the shen shenanigans already. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. Let's stop the bullshit and get the fights done. Now on to the historical overview, the historical retrospective of the greatest South African heavyweight boxer of all time, Jerry Kotsea, who died on January 12th at the age of 67 
due to lung cancer. The first time I heard of Jerry Coetzee was the first year I started watching boxing in 1977. I was having a discussion with my father, and my father told me that he thought that Jerry Coetzee could give Muhammad Ali problems because Ali was slipping, and Jerry Coetzee had a very good jab, and like Ernie Shavers, a great right hand. Not as great as Ernie Shavers, but he was a better boxer than Ernie Shavers. Ernie Shavers was a pure, pure brawler. Jerry Coetzee, my father told me that's that he he told me this was his exact words. That South African white boy could fight. That's what my father said. I'm quoting my father. My father also told me that Jerry Coetzee was very outspoken in his anti-apartheid stance, and that he was one of the first South African fighters to fight white South African fighters to fight a black South African. Ladies and gentlemen, in the early 1970s, the South African Boxing Commission had two championships in each division. A regular champion, quote-unquote white champion, and the black champion. Jerry Kotsea unified the two heavyweight championships, him being the white champion. He defeated the black South African champion, and then... Eventually, all the titles were unified. No longer that you have a, a white title and a black title. That was Jerry Coetzee leading that charge. Jerry Coetzee also was very pro-Mandela. And when Mandela was elected to pres uh, as president of South Africa in 1994, he invited Coetzee over. He even gave Coetzee there. In 2003, he gave Coetzee the South African version of the Presidential Medal of Honor. And Nelson Mandela took a liking to Jerry Coetzee because Mandela as a youth, before he became a revolutionary, before he, he became the symbol of oppression in South Africa, was a boxer. He was a real boxer. And Mandela and Jerry Coetzee had this bond, both ex-boxers, both lovers of boxing. And Jerry Coetzee also, a lot of people don't know this, uh, kudos to the Huffington Post. They reported this the day after he died in the article. In the early 1980s, Jerry Coetzee started training a teenage black fighter. The South African government told Coetzee he'd be under sanctions. He'd be banished from the country if he continued to train that young black fighter. Coetzee told him, go ahead, do it. And he went and he adopted the young man as the young man had come from a broken family. Jerry Coetzee had great heart both inside and outside the ring. First time I saw Jerry Coetzee was in June of 1979. We had the heavyweight tournament. Four fighters were picked by Muhammad Ali as he was giving up the WBA heavyweight championship as he, as he was retiring, quote unquote, for good. He picked Leon Spinks, the guy who beat him and then who he beat to regain the heavyweight championship for the third and final time. He picked Dwayne Bobbick, 1972 U.S. Olympian, John Tate, 1976 U.S. Olympic bronze medalist, and Jerry Coetzee. Ali saw something in Coetzee, probably the same thing that my father saw in Coetzee, that this guy was the goods. John Tate knocked out Dwayne Bobbick in the first round, and Jerry Coetzee, June 1979, Monte Carlo, 
Right before the fight started, my father told me Coach C was going to blast Leon Spinks. I said, yeah, Papa, Spinks beat our league, former champion. And my father's like, the, the, Spinks is too small. He's 5'10". Coach C is 6'4". And Spinks is a brawler with that herky-jerky style. He's going to walk into Kosea's bionic right hand. And my father explained to me that Kosea had several hand operations on his right hand and that they they had to do a surgery to correct his right hand and after the afterwards he had more power in his right hand than before the injury so they called his right hand the bionic hand well my father said Spinks was going to walk into that right hand and midway through the first round what happened Spinks walks into that right hand and goes down and he should have stayed down Spinks out on his feet gets up. Of course, the referee is going to give him the benefit of doubt. Cotia drops him two more times with that right hand. That spectacular right cross. Technical knockout win for Leon Spinks. I mean, for Jerry Cotia over Leon Spinks in the first round. And he moves on to fight for the vacant WBA title in the championship tournament final against John Tate. October 1979. They fight in South Africa, and Kotsia has the hometown advantage. But John Tate was actually taller than Jerry Kotsia. Jerry Kotsia and John Tate in 1979 were six foot four, six foot five, which was huge back then. Because when Ali was six foot three, Ken Norton and Larry Hill were six foot three, they were considered to be giants in heavyweight division. Now today. They, uh, Coatsia and John Tate would be average height because Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder six foot seven, Tyson Fury six foot nine. But back then, these two were behemoths in the heavyweight division. And John Tate was the first time Coatsia ever fought somebody taller than him. And John Tate pressured Coatsia, wore him down, and Coatsia was extremely tired. One of Coatsia's biggest problems was his stamina. He had a great chin, but once he got tired he was susceptible to getting hit more often and Tate dominated the last five rounds to win a unanimous decision and win the vacant title a year later Coatsia gets a shot against Mike Weaver the guy who had in my opinion the greatest comfort behind victory in heavyweight boxing history he was way behind against John Tate March 31st 1980 in John Tate's hometown of Knoxville Tennessee and with a Stunning combination in the 15th round with 45 seconds left. He knocked out John Tate to win the WBA heavyweight title. And his first defense would be October of 1980 against Jerry Kotsaya. And Jerry Kotsaya hurts Weaver several. This was a great fight. I would advise you guys to go to YouTube and look up this fight. And check to see if it's on uh Martin's vintage boxing um, channel because if it's on there it's pristine 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 footage I mean the quality is pristine Weaver got hurt several times by Kosia's big right hand but Kosia was exhausted and going into the championship rounds Weaver took over as Weaver's continued to use his jab and he knocks out Kosia in the 13th round of a great fight go watch that fight ladies and gentlemen Second title opportunity, Kotsia, the tank is empty. He gets knocked out. He gets robbed a year later in a fight against Ronaldo Snipes, a fight that I thought he won. Snipes gets the decision. 
He fights Pinklin Thomas in 1983. Good fight between two guys. Pinklin Thomas had a great left jab. Cotilla stayed with him, and I had to fight a draw. The fight was scored a draw. Cotilla gets a title shot. September 1983 against Michael Dokes in Michael Dokes' backyard. Richfield Coliseum, suburb of Cleveland. Michael Dokes is from Akron, not too far from Richfield. Uh, the Richfield Coliseum, the former home of the Cleveland Cavaliers. It was the home of the Cavaliers in 1983. Michael Dokes considered the only real threat to Larry Holmes at that time. Huge favorite going into this fight. But beginning with the first round, you saw Cotia take advantage of his height and reach advantage over Dokes. Yes, Dokes was the faster, flashier fighter, but Cotia was landing that jab. And then I gave Cotia the first three rounds. In the third round, he stunned Michael Dokes, but Dokes opened up a bad cut above Cotia's right eye. And Cotia, worried about the cut, lost the fourth round. But in the fifth round, like my father said, Cotia had a great, great, way of counterpunching and landing the right cross when you walk into it. Michael Dokes walked into a left jab that blinded him, right cross combination. He went down, flash knocked down. He was hurt. Kudos to Dokes. He recovered and even hurt Cotia, but they hoped Cotia had Dokes in major trouble when the fifth round ended. Then in the sixth round, Dokes, I gave Dokes the sixth round. Seventh round, Cotia staggered Dokes, batted him. Eighth round, Dokes recovered. I thought Dokes won the eighth round, but that was it for Dokes. Ninth round, Cotia was landing rights, that right cross to both the body and head, and kudos to Sugar Ray Leonard. My father and I went to his brother's house, my Uncle Louie, to watch this fight that night. Kudos to Sugar Ray Leonard. As he kept mentioning the strategy that Cotia was using, and he explained it verbatim, and it was the best color commentating I ever saw him. I always thought Sugar Ray Leonard was lackluster as a color commentator. Not that night. He was on point, and he was talking about why Cotia could beat Dokes and why he was beating Dokes and talked about how he's going to the body because, if anything, when Sugar Ray Leonard hurt you, he went to the body. And that's what Cotia was doing. He loved it. And then in the 10th round, Cotia staggered Stokes. And he's beating the body and the head. And then finally, two, Deontay Wilder, Ernie Shavers like right crosses. Bounce off of Michael Dokes' face. Michael Dokes falls face first to the canvas and is counted out. Jerry Cotia becomes the first South African heavyweight champion of the world. After beating Michael Dokes, he tried to get a fight with Larry Holmes to unify the WBA and IBF titles. But Larry Holmes uh, had fired Don King as his promoter and was in turmoil with Don King. Don King was Cotsea's promoter. So that fight never happened. And then Cotsea hurt his hand again. And so he had to recover. And instead... He went and signed to fight Greg Page. Greg Page, who had lost his last two fights. Greg Page didn't deserve this title shot. The only reason Greg Page got this title shot was the guy who beat Greg Page, David Bay, refused to go to South Africa, and I respect David Bay. David Bay said, I'm not going to South Africa to fight inside an apartheid country. Come here. Page goes to South Africa, fights Jerry Cotsea, and it's the best 
Page ever looked in his entire professional career. Greg Page from Louisville, Kentucky, like Muhammad Ali, uh, had a tremendous amateur career. Turned pro in 1979 after the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And Jimmy Carter said My, uh, the U.S. Olympic team will be boycotting the 1980 Olympics that were going to be held in Moscow. So Greg Page turned pro and he, he showed a lot of problems. But then he started becoming more fat, more lazy. It's why he lost to Trevor Burbick. It's why he lost to Tim Witherspoon. And it's why he lost to David Bay. Well, that night against Jerry Cotier, he came in trim. And he came in and he didn't run around and dance like he normally does, flicking a jab that one land. He stayed in the middle ring. And he outboxed and outpunched. He dropped Cotier, almost knocked him out in the sixth round, had him hurt in the seventh round. And in the eighth round, he staggered Cotier with a beautiful right cross. And then with a Devastating left hook. He knocked Kotsea out cold. Kotsea lost the title the same way he won it by knockout December 1st, 1984. After that loss, Kotsea fought a few more times, got knocked out by Frank Bruno in the first round, retired. Then he came back and he fought a horrible fight in the late 90s against Iran Barkley that ESPN showed on TV and it was criminal. These two guys had no business fighting each other. And Kotsia dominated early and then Iran Barkley knocked him out late. I was watching this fight like this is, it, it was a train wreck. And then Kotsia finally retired for good. And I believe at the time Kotsia was 42 years old when he finally retired. He got the Medal of Honor, the South African Presidential Medal of Honor from Mandela in 2003. He was a staunch supporter of Nelson Mandela. Kotsea uh, worked with a lot of South African fighters and trying to help them. And unfortunately, he finally died January 12th. Thursday, January 12th, due to lung cancer at the age of 67. Rest in peace to Jerry Kotsea. To, to see a Jerry Cosea fight as a kid was always exciting. He gave it he gave it his all. And you were in a fight. Now, Frank Bruno knocked him out in the first round. Cotea was done. But whoever else he fought, whether it was Michael Dokes, Greg Page, Mike Weaver, John Tate, Pinklin Thomas, Ronaldo Snipes, he gave them all hell. He gave them all. The five fights he lost to in his prime were the five good fighters. None of these fighters were stiffs. They were all good fighters. Couple were world champions. Mike Weaver, John Tate. Greg Page. He lost to Ronaldo Snipes and Frank Bruno, too. And Frank Bruno would later on become a world champion. So there you go. Four of his five losses were the, were the future or current heavyweight champions of the world at the time. So kudos to the great South African legend, Jerry Coetzee. Rest in peace, big man. You up there now, um, maybe you and my pops talking boxing, because my father always, always respected Jerry Coetzee. Next week, please send questions, uh, hashtag AskRobSilver, because there are no real fights this weekend. Uh, so next week, extended uh, Q&A session, um, more rantings about the nonsense going on in the world of boxing, and I will finally give my historical overview of the legendary Manny Pacquiao's career. Until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.